This non-accredited E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Special Edition podcast is presented by DKP Med Radio. Even though most people with MS are well-informed about their disease, they all want to know what therapeutic advances might be on the horizon. Welcome to this special edition of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. And please note, this podcast is not accredited and does not provide continuing medical education credit. So let's talk about MS, specifically about living well with MS. It's an ongoing podcast series hosted by Jeff Alex, presented by a United Kingdom registered charity, the Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis Organization. Recently, they invited E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Program Director, Dr. Michael Kornberg, from the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine to be interviewed to discuss current MS research. Dr. Kornberg accepted the invite, and here is that conversation. Welcome to Living Well with MS, the podcast from Overcoming MS, for people with multiple sclerosis interested in making healthy lifestyle choices. I'm your host, Jeff Alex. Thank you for joining us for this new episode. I hope it makes you feel more informed and inspired about living a full life with MS. Don't forget to check out our show notes for more information and useful links. You can find these on our website at overcomingms.org slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word about us on your social media channels. That's the kind of viral effect we can all smile about. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Joining me on this episode of the Living Well with MS podcast is Dr. Michael Kornberg. Dr. Kornberg completed his undergraduate studies at Yale University. He then received MD and PhD degrees from the John Hopkins School of Medicine and stayed at John Hopkins for neurology residency and a clinical and research fellowship in neuroimmunology. He is committed to a career that combines the competent and compassionate care of patients with multiple sclerosis and other immunologic disorders of the nervous system with basic and translational research aimed at developing improved therapies. He is also Program Director of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review, which is a continuing medical education program credited by John Hopkins. It includes a podcast featuring discussions about clinical topics and patient scenarios with doctors and nurses treating people with MS in order to educate healthcare providers on best care for people living with MS. If you haven't already, please consider registering at www.obecomingms.org. This way you can stay up to date on all the latest OMS news, including new programs and digital initiatives. Again, that's www.overcomingms.org. And look for the register button in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Now let's go on with the podcast. So welcome, Dr. Kornberg. And uh, might I call you Michael? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so to start off with, we've established you're a, um, you work at John Hopkins and... Um, and that covers a wide um, range of neurological research. But what's your um, particular areas of um, research interest? Sure. So um, I, I specialize in multiple sclerosis, both in the clinical work that I do taking care of patients and, and also in my research. Um, so um, I, I care almost exclusively for, for people with MS. Um, and I have a research program um, that in essence, uh, is attempting to, to understand, particularly 
progressive disease and the reasons that myelin repair fails and how we can modulate those processes um, to, to better treat people with progressive MS. Um, and I'm also interested in uh, how dietary therapies uh, and basic metabolism impacts the immune system and how we can modulate the immune system in people with MS and other autoimmune diseases through, uh, through metabolism and diet. Okay, those, those are both um, areas I think which would be particularly interesting to our listeners. So just to, on the first one, um, there's an awful lot of um, drugs and treatments available to try to slow down or prevent MS relapses, lesions and so on. But remyelination, that's almost the holy grail, I think. A lot of people with MS would certainly see that as okay we're on a treatment, we're living a lifestyle, we've lessened the progression, but can we get back anything? Yeah. And and is that something, do you, do you see that as something that we will see in the, in the relatively near future? Um, I, I do. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, relatively near future is obviously um, uh, subjective to some point. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to have a remyelinating therapy, you know, within the next two or three years. But, you know, I think on the, the time scale of five to 10 years, I, I think it's absolutely a possibility. Um, you know, uh, it's it's easy to, you know, I think for everyone to lose sight of how much progress there's been in, in uh, the MS world in terms of therapeutics, um, you know, up until you know, almost 2010, you know, that there were really only a, a handful of, of therapeutic options for relapsing MS. And within the past 10 years, we've had this explosion of therapies. Um, and as a result, you know, I, I think we are in a pretty good place in terms of the treatments that you discuss, in terms of preventing, you know, new, new uh, attacks of MS, new flare-ups, new lesions from forming on, on MRI, um, you know, which we know makes a big difference in, uh, in, in the course of someone's disease. And so, you know, the goal is always going to be to, to diagnose MS as early as possible and start those treatments as early as possible. Um, but, you know, we're, we're always going to have a group of people who, uh, you know, unfortunately have been left with, with uh, permanent disability from prior attacks. Um, and uh, we are, you know, we are at a place where I think that over the past five to 10 years, we've gained a lot of knowledge about why myelin repair fails in people with MS um, and what drives that process. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a big gap between understanding why that happens, uh, you know, in a research lab and kind of translating it into something that we can give to, to patients. Um, but I think already we've made a lot of progress in terms of understanding how to measure myelin repair in people. Um, and we have a lot of good candidates uh, that, that we can take from kind of the research lab, you know, into clinical trials. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think we're a couple years away, um, but I, I, I certainly think, you know, within the next 10 years, it's reasonable to think that, that we will have therapies for myeloid repair. And so is it even possible that someone with progressive MS who might be wheelchair bound now that that actually there could be some level of reverse of their symptoms or, yes. or would it be a stabilization um so uh 
So a little of both, but I think it's important to kind of set reasonable expectations, you know, at least, and the caveat to everything I'm saying is that this is, this is my opinion, it's my interpretation of, you know, the, the data we have now and, and what I, I expect the progress is going to be in the future. Um, you know, the, there's, there's kind of two separate goals, uh, you know, that, that you mentioned, kind of halting progression and actually promoting recovery of function. Um, and, you know, I think to an extent, you know, there might be different therapies that are, that are targeted at, at those two kind of distinct elements. Um, and uh, so I do think it is going to be possible to repair myelin and actually lead to recovery of function. But I think it's important to be realistic about, about you know, what, what we might be able to expect in that scenario. So, um, you know, those remyelinating therapies are going to be most effective in people earlier on in the disease, you know, who have not had long-standing severe disability, um, you know, for the reason being that in later stages of MS, uh, people who have had progressive MS for a long period of time, um, you know, one big problem is that, you know, the brain atrophies, you actually lose those nerve cells themselves. And so, um, you know, it's, whereas it's easier to repair the myelin coating, you know, that, that, um, that covers uh, the, the neuron processes, it's much, much harder to get neurons to regrow. And so at the later stages of MS, where you, you just don't have the, the neurons there to remyelinate, it, that is, is a big challenge. Um, and so the goal I still, with, with remyelinating therapies, is still going to be to, to treat people early on in the course of their disease you know, before they've gotten to a point where there's been neurodegeneration and we've just lost brain tissue that, that we can't get back. Um, and I think along those lines, you know, I think what, you know, what I would have in mind, what I would hope for, you know, as a realistic goal in 10 years is that, you know, if, if someone has, you know, lost vision from a, an episode of optic neuritis, which is common with MS, that, you know, we can get their vision to improve, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if someone has difficulty walking, you know, that we can lead, you know, we can create a meaningful improvement in their walking ability. If you're, if you're talking about someone who is wheelchair bound and has been wheelchair bound for years, kind of getting them out of the chair and, and walking, that, that is a very ambitious goal. And I wish I could say that I think that that is realistic to consider in that time frame, but it's, it's probably not. Um, and so, you know, I have in mind, um, you know, making, making, uh, improvements in, in people's function that is meaningful to them in their life, but you know we have to have some realistic expectations of what that'll mean. Okay. Um, the other thing you mentioned as a research interest is is diet. Now, overcoming MS is a um, lifestyle um, charity, so which includes medication as well. So it's but it's um, it also we look at um, diet, exercise, mindfulness. Um, so. Do you think that diet has a meaningful effect on um, the progression and and immediate lifestyle of someone um, with MS? So um, I think it does, um, but I also think that we don't know nearly enough about what specific diets are best for someone with MS. Um, and, and I think that we have a tendency to, to get carried away in some of what we extrapolate from, you know, what will we see in, you know, in research models versus people. And so, you know, ultimately, there are certain things we know for certain, 
you know, we, we know that, that people uh, who, um, you know, are overweight or obese tend to have more significant disability than people who aren't over time. Um, you know, we, we know that people with certain comorbidities like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, that they develop more di disability over time. And I'm, I'm talking about people with MS who have these coexisting conditions. Um, and so, you know, generally we know that, that you know, healthy diet, um, you know, a moderate amount of aerobic exercise, you know, that these things aren't just generally good for health, you know, that, that they're particularly good for people who have multiple sclerosis. Um, you know, the, the next question that comes up is, you know, so, you know, what diets are particularly good for MS, um, you know, or what diets, you know, uh, 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 kind of protect, you know, my, my brain from being attacked by the immune system or, you know, promote recovery of function. And that's the place where, you know, we, there's a big chasm between, you know, what we're finding in the research world and, and what we've seen in people. Um, and so, you know, I'm someone who is a strong believer that basic, you know, cell metabolism and because of that, you know, diet can have an impact on how, how the immune system functions and, and, and possibly even how the brain repairs itself. Um, but we, we really don't know, you know, at, you know, in people, you know, people are always much more complicated than, than what we're studying in the lab. We don't yet know, um, you know, which of those diets, you know, are, are helpful, you know, which aren't. Um, and so, you know, we, we see a lot of things on the internet about, you know, this food being pro-inflammatory, this food being anti-inflammatory. And in my opinion, that goes well beyond what we really know at this point. Um, and so the way that I counsel, you know, my, you know, my patients is that, um, you know, as a general rule, kind of the, you know, the same prescription for general living we would give to everybody, you know, everything in moderation, you know, favor um, whole foods over processed foods, you know, getting, um, you know, moderate aerobic exercise. Um, if, if someone really wants to have a particular diet to follow, because, you know, for some people that structure is, is helpful, I always recommend the Mediterranean diet, which is, is really the only diet that has clearly been shown to, uh, to have a, a broad health benefit in people. Um, you know, some people, you know, there's a number of other diets that your listeners might be, you know, might be familiar with, the Walls diet, the Swank diet, the Paleo diet. And, and the way that I, you know, that I talk to patients about it is that generally, if, if someone kind of commits to one of those diets, you know, usually their, their diet is improving relative to what it was. Um, and, you know, they're often going to lose weight. They're often going to feel better. And so, you know, as, as long as it's not some extreme diet that really carries some potential risk, I am all for it. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I kind of just recommend to people that they, they do what, what works for them. Um, you know, I'm um, in, in my research, I'm particularly interested in ketogenic diets because of, uh, of how that might impact the immune system that, you know, we've seen in research models, but I'm very wary, you know, when, when I talk to patients, the fact that, you know, you have to understand that things like a ketogenic diet that are very high in fat, um, you know, we don't know what the, you know, what the negative consequences might be of that over time, um, you know, in terms of cholesterol levels, and that's all being studied. And so, you know, it's worth talking about your dietary choices with your doctors. And, and, you know, we need to understand that, we don't have a great uh, knowledge yet about, you know, how some of these diets, you know, their effects on the body over time, you know, but, but generally, you know, healthy diet, you know, certainly is an important part of, 
of uh, of you know the care for people with MS. Mm -hmm. The overcoming S uh, overcoming MS. Sorry, um, promote. Um, it's based on originally on Swank, but it's essentially a whole food, plant based diet plus seafood. Um, and I mean, as you say, I mean, I I've, I asked my neurologist when, when I first decided to, to go this way, and um, and he said, well, there's, there's just no proof out there. We just don't have the evidence base. But he said, ultimately, it's going to be good for you, and it will reduce your risk of heart disease, strokes, diabetes, all these other things. So he said, you know, if you look at the upsides and the downsides, it's not going to do you too much harm, and um, you might miss some of the the things that you liked to eat but other than that it's not going to do your health any harm but yeah it's it, the problem is is getting the research isn't it it's, um, it is a very difficult one you can't have a double blind placebo trial of someone eating one thing and or not eating that thing you know if you eat it or not so it's a bit yeah, of a trigger. That, that, is, that is very hard and you know i mean diet studies are really hard you know which is you know which is why um you know it's that that science is lagging behind um, you know, but but we're we're getting there. I mean, they're they're not impossible to do. Um, and you know, I'm I'm you know, currently doing a dietary study with ketogenic diet, and so it's it's possible, but uh, it's 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 much harder, um, you know, than a randomized drug trial. And you mentioned ketogenic diets. There's a lot of people that I come across um, who are quite successful in their MS treatment who use fasting, and that. They were saying that that's a way, and, and actually, there's uh, Val Salongo, who's uh, very much yep. into fasting. Um, he he was saying that's, you know, primarily what you're doing is you're getting the body into that ketogenic state. So it's not the what I think people traditionally think of as ketogenic, which is that specific diet where you're eating very very high fat. Uh, these uh, they call bulletproof coffees or something where people have like right. massive amounts of caffeine and with butter in it and right. and um and and so they're specifically eating very high fat very low carb diet yes that would get you into ketosis but but also so would fasting so it's like you don't have to go down this very high saturated fat route you can actually get some of the benefits um in other ways so Fasting isn't a, a pillar of OMS. It's not something that's particularly uh, mentioned. But I think it's one of those areas that is of particular interest because so many people are mentioning it. Um, and is that something where you think maybe that a fasting method of, uh, and introducing ketosis through fasting may may prove to be something that's the future? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it may be. Um, but, you know, I, I would still put intermittent fasting in the category of we, we just don't know, you know, what, whether it is beneficial, you know, for people with MS and, and what the potential downside might be in the long run. And so I, I think it is um, certainly an, an exciting, you know, area um, of research, not only for MS, you know, but for, you know, a whole host of human diseases. Um, and there certainly is a lot of, you know, at, at the, you know, the level of, you know, animal models, there's, you know, a lot of great evidence, including, you know, um, you know, work that you already, you know, that you already uh, you mentioned from uh, the Congress group, um, looking at intermittent fasting uh, in, uh, in MS animal models. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, when, you know, people who do that research will make the argument that, uh, you know, that, that we evolved as humans in, a, you know, kind of an intermittent fasting type of 
model because, you know, when, when food wasn't so readily available, you know, you go these long stretches without eating. And, and so the body is kind of designed to work that way. And that's a compelling argument. Um, but, you know, still, I, I think, you know, we, we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, taking a, you know, what's, what sounds like a very plausible hypothesis and has some support, you know, in animal models and just extrapolating it to, to people without doing those studies. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, what I, what I tell people who want to do intermittent fasting is as long as they're not doing something totally crazy, um, you know, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And, you know, generally they are going to, you know, be healthier, just like we talked about, you know, with all those other diets. Um, because, you know, if you are, you know, if you're kind of condensing your eating to eight hours during the day, you know, you eat less, you know, at, you know, absolutely. Um, and there may absolutely be something about, you know, the ketosis that you enter into during those fasting periods that that's beneficial. Um, but, you know, we, we just need to have better evidence in people before I think we should be recommending that broadly because, um, you know, until we have that data, you know, it, it all remains an, an extrapolation and, and we don't know for certain that there couldn't be any downsides to doing that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly even certainly in my lifestyle lifetime rather uh, and and certainly in like go back to my grandparents the way we eat has changed massively so i I've, I've got teenage children and and we're just eat, uh, asking them earlier what they wanted to eat tonight and they can eat anything and it's like we're going to go to the supermarket so they can eat anything they yes. you know when i was growing up the vegetables had to be in season so you couldn't eat you know there was like I mean, there was a big thing about asparagus because asparagus had a really short season so you had to if you had it you had it this time of year now you can have it at any time of year because it's flown here from peru or kenya or so you've got the whole globe providing you know somewhere it's in season around the world and it's just it if you think about it it's crazy really you can actually literally i, I just thought we are asking them what you want to eat tonight and they have no restriction they have a global, they can eat anything from around the world because it's all available locally in a supermarket to us. And that, yeah, is, is such a modern phenomenon. And, and yeah, maybe there, there are like downsides to that. Maybe, you know, the you know, hundred thousand years of human evolution hasn't really prepared us for this sudden yeah. Um, yeah, consumerist state we have. Yeah. Well, what, one thing that I do feel, you know, comfortable saying, you know, you know, given the, the, the evidence we have now is that I, I have little doubt that, you know, our traditional Western diet that we've come, become accustomed to because of all of those things you mentioned is, is not ideal. <laughs> um, you know, that, that I, I think is, is probably fair. Yeah, and I think the processing as well is another thing, which we don't mention too much on OMS, but there's some other people that I've talked to about this, and they, and they say, you know, if there's, if there's a large number of ingredients on the back of the packet, it's probably not very good for you. And that doesn't mean that any of those ingredients are necessarily you think, oh, that's really, really bad. But it's just like, how can something which is an evening meal be wrapped up in a packet, go in a microwave, be eaten? You look at the use-by date and that's three months in the future and you think, this is is not natural food. Um, And it has huge numbers of different ingredients in there. And, and, you know, and I'm sure it tastes delicious, but it's not traditionally what you'd assume something was food because, uh, yeah, it's not normal. They did it with, a, was it a, a, I won't say the brand, but a, a popular hamburger 
and and they left one out for six months or something and it hadn't I, I I saw that. Yeah, yeah it, it, it looked the same. You're like, okay, if molds aren't eating this, then maybe we shouldn't be eating <laughs> this. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but the, this um, episode is actually going out in um, the month. We sort of have themed months, and it's um, it's a month look, looking at uh, pregnancy and children. So I just wanted to ask you um, a bit about pregnancy and MS. So if someone has MS, I'm thinking of, of women here specifically um would would it affect them planning to have a baby how how would pregnancy affect someone with ms yeah so that is obviously a very important question you know particularly when you're talking about a disease that you know affects primarily women who are who are you know average age of 30 and kind of right in that time period to have pregnancies so um uh Women with MS can absolutely get pregnant. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it's useful to have uh, some planning and strategy around it. So some, some basic things to cover. So number one, um, you know, we, we know that, um, uh, that women with MS um, do not have you know, any greater complications related to pregnancy as, as women who do not have MS. And so that can be a concern for, for people. And, you know, I can be very reassuring that, uh, you know, if you are a woman with MS, you know, your, your pregnancy is just as likely to go, you know, smoothly as, as any other woman's. Um, uh, we know that, that um, pregnancy itself does not have any, you know, generally does not have any long-term Im- impact on your MS, you know, so um, you know, you're not putting yourself at, at risk of, you know, greater disability in the future, you know, by having babies. Um, and, you know, so what we do know about pregnancy and MS is that pregnancy itself is, is almost like being on a disease-modifying drug. It, it protects you from, from, uh, from relapses, from MS attacks. And, you know, we, we think that's because, um, you know, pregnancy is kind of naturally an immunosuppressed state because, you know, obviously you don't want your immune system attacking you know, the, the baby in, in utero. Um, and so particularly in the third trimester, um, you know, relapse rate goes, you know, goes down um, significantly compared to what it was before. Um, we, we do know that um, the, the uh, risk of having an MS attack goes up considerably in the few months after giving birth. And so, you know, that, that three to six months after giving birth, you, you can see kind of a, a rebound effect uh, in which um, the risk of having an attack is actually a bit higher than it was right before you got pregnant. Um, it, there are associations that, uh, that women who, um, who breastfeed um, uh, for three to six months tend to have a lower risk of that kind of rebound effect, um, but we don't know exactly whether, you know, that's causal at this point, whether breastfeeding actually does protect you from having an attack. Um, and so those are some kind of key features that I think are, are worth mentioning. Um, you know, the, the you know, related to all of that is, you know, what you do with the disease-modifying therapies that, you know, that a woman either, either is on before pregnancy and, and when to restart after pregnancy. Um, and so, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it's always possible to, to work around you know, whatever therapy someone is on. And, and you know, there's, there's a little bit of, um, you know, very good MS neurologists, you know, kind of have some differences in how they practice, you know, with regard to, to disease-modifying drugs. But, you know, at this point, we have pretty good evidence that 
the interferon therapies um, and clotrimer acetate seem to be safe even to continue through pregnancy. You know, there, we have large registries, um, uh, including lots of women who've gotten pregnant on those medications, and, and there, there has been no signal in terms of complications of the pregnancy or risks to the, you know, to the baby. Um, you know, other medications, uh, you know, the, the general um, consensus is, is uh, to stop them, you know, roughly 30 days before you were attempting pregnancy, but, but there's some kind of wiggle room there and some things that, you know, as, a, pre as a, a woman considering pregnancy, you just need to talk to your neurologist about, you know, so there are some medications that if you just suddenly stop them, your, your, uh, your um, risk of an MS attack can go up considerably. So, you know, thinking about like uh, fingolimod, you know, which goes under the, the name Gelenia and, you know, other um, uh, medications like that, or natalizumab, which goes under the trade name Tysabri. Um, and so if you're on one of those medications, you have to strategize a bit with, with your MS neurologist. Um, and then for, uh, you know, for some of the, the newer, what we call B-cell therapies, you know, things like ocrelizumab, which is ocrevis, and, and now there's, there's a, another form, casimpta. Um, uh, there's just some timing issues. So, um, you know, generally, if you get a dose of Ocrevus, you know, I recommend to, to women that you wait two months until you, you start trying to conceive, um, because in that case, by the time the, the drug can cross the placenta, it's kind of out of your system. And, and, um, uh, and so there's, you know, there's some strategies involved in terms of when to stop modifying therapy, whether to continue it during pregnancy, and then when to restart it afterwards that are just worth having a plan for. Um, you know, but, but the, the bottom line is that, you know, uh, you know, women with MS, you know, can and should have, you know, have, um, you know, have children and do it in a very safe way. And, uh, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very possible and, and then you don't have to worry about risks to the baby or, you know, risks to your disability, you know, in, in general sense. Okay, excellent. So just worth speaking to your neurologist in the planning phase. Um, and connect with that, um, normally connect to pregnancy with children. Um, so I think people with MS uh, are particularly aware of their, their being, some genetic component although this was long disregarded it was like um you know i, I think and then still there's they don't really know what's exactly going on i believe um but is there a very a, a very highly elevated risk for children of people with ms because i mean i'm aware because my father had ms but i know you there's a cause and effect thing going on here it's like just because you're more likely your parents had it doesn't mean that everyone with MS's children will have MS. Um, but I, I mean, I've got children, so I sort of do have a personal concern. You sort of worry, is it more likely that they'll get MS? Um, and I know there must be some link, but but how much more risky is it for children and people with MS? Yeah, no, it's a great question, a very important question. And we are starting to understand the genetics, the genetic relationship of MS, you know, in a, in a, in a better way. So there, there certainly is a genetic contribution. Um, and, you know, we know that firmly now, you know, we've identified a number of, of genes, you know, that, that can confer, you know, increased risk of MS. Um, but, you know, there's also a big component to your risk of MS that has nothing to do with genetics. And so, you know, just to give you, you know, some kind of key figures, um, 
if you have um, a first degree relative with MS, you know, so for instance, you, you know, with, with your father, you know, or if you have MS and you're going to have a, a child, um, uh, generally, you know, in most studies that have been done, the risk that your, you know, that your child will have MS is somewhere between one and five percent. You know, three percent is kind of the, the typical, you know, the, the typical reported number. So, um, you know, you have MS, your child has roughly a 3% risk of having MS. Um, you know, that is much higher than the general population. It's about 10 times higher, you know, than, than the general population. So clearly there's added risk there. But I think it's important to, you know, to, to, you know, to emphasize that it means that, you know, that there's a 97% chance that your child will not have MS. And so, you know, still the, the chances are much greater that they would not, you know, than they would. Um, and, you know, if you, you know, what, one of the, you know, I think the most fascinating data we have is with identical twins, um, you know, one of which develops MS. And we know that um, uh, if one identical twin has MS, there's about a 25 to 30% chance the other twin will. And those are two people that have identical genes, right? And so, you know, that's a very high risk, 25 to 30%, you know, but, but clearly it tells you that there's, there's a lot of factors that have nothing to do with your genes also. So there, there's a genetic risk, you know, it's something worth, you know, worth knowing about, you know, but the bottom line is that you know, chances are, you know, your, your child will not have MS. And, and those identical twins presumably grew up in the same part of the world, had yes. the same diet, had the same lifestyle, and, and there's a lot of factors going on probably in their first, say, 20 years of their life, which were almost exactly the same because siblings are likely to, you know, be treated the same aren't they so there's that as well and and there yeah. is it does and another, another sort of unknown um is is there does seem to be a geographic component as well doesn't there it's sort of how close you are to the equator and and certain western countries have higher instances than others so yeah no absolutely um you know there's been some debate you know that the, the textbook you know the textbook Kind of answer has always been that, you know, that the further away you are from the equator, the higher your risk of MS, and, and that's where this this theory came up. You know that that vitamin D levels might have something to to do with risk because you know, the further away from the equator, the less sunlight you're exposed to. There's been some debate about whether you know we still see that sort of geographic you know variant um, uh, consistently. You know, but you know along those lines, you know one of the I think the more fascinating things about MS epidemiology is that, you know, just like you said, different areas of the country have different rates of, of MS. Um, and we know that if you, if you um, move, you know, from your, your place of birth, roughly before puberty, you know, by the age of, you know, 11 or 12, um, that you, you take on the risk of the, the area that you move to. Um, whereas if you, um, uh, if you, you know, move after puberty, you, you maintain the, the risk of the place where you came from. And so it does seem like there's some sort of environmental exposure that happens very early on in life um, that kind of sets the process rolling. Yeah, I think uh, vitamin D seems to be a, a hot topic at the moment as well, because so most people I know with MS are supplementing to some extent with vitamin D. And and there's an, another person I spoke to, Aaron Boster, who's a MS specialist in Ohio. And, and one of the things he said is um, when you're looking at things that you're considering a lifestyle, 
what potential good does it do you? What potential harm does it do you? How much does it cost you? Um, you know, look at these sort of things. Um, and something like vitamin D or vitamin D, um, what potential good is it going to do you? Well, there's potentially lots of things. It may be good for your MS. It, it might actually help you with other conditions as well. There's a likelihood that we are somewhat deficient, almost everyone, because we're walking around fully clothed and in offices, um, which is not natural for humans, and living a lot further away from the equator than would normally be possible. And what are the downsides? Well, if you take huge amounts, you can get calcium problems and get kidney stones, um, and the cost is fairly low. So, yes, it's probably worth sensibly supplementing and it, it shouldn't do too much harm so i think a lot of people with ms are, are supplementing and then recently there's people have been saying oh we're having trouble getting hold of vitamin d because um it's now being uh, widely regarded as helping with um, coronavirus covid19 oh, right. symptoms <laughs> so then the mass population have started to buy it because um because I, and i think they do th- i think they're pretty certain there is some sort of connection with your vitamin d levels but again they don't know it's cause and effect they're sort of saying if you is it because you had low vitamin d that you got coronavirus or is it the coronavirus which caused your vitamin d levels to go down and so um yeah but again does it hurt to take a small amount of of vitamin d probably not yeah i I mean i think you you said that all very eloquently, you know, from, from my perspective, um, you know, that's, that's exactly, you know, how, you know, how I, uh, I phrase it for, you know, the, the people that I take care of with MS is that, you know, we, there's this very clear association that people with lower vitamin D levels have a greater risk for MS and, and those who have MS who tend to do worse. Um, you know, what we, we don't know for certain how much of a difference it makes to give back vitamin D. And, and there's some research suggesting that, Kind of like you mentioned, having a low vitamin D level is is kind of causally related to your risk for MS, but you know, it doesn't necessarily help to to take supplements. But on the flip side, yeah, as long as you're not overdosing, you know, just like you said, there's no downside to it. Um, you know, it, it can it can only help. You know, there's there's no risks, and so generally, you know, I I do have all my patients taking vitamin D supplements if, if their levels are low, um, and so I, I think that's that's exactly my take on it well okay and um, another area I'd, I'd be particularly interested in is where you see things going in the future so in in the relatively sort of short, short term five to ten years is there is there anything on the horizon where you think that there's new treatments um, or any any changes to advice that you'd be giving to people with MS um, upcoming yeah so you know there there are a number of interesting things on the immediate horizon. Um, uh, you know, some of the, um, you know, on, if I'm really thinking the, the short-term horizon, you know, the next couple of years, um, you know, one, one area is, you know, there's, there's been kind of this, this debate in, in MS uh, uh, care between kind of two strategies of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of therapy. So, you know, one camp is you, it's called the escalation approach, where you start with an MS treatment, you know, that maybe has low risk, but is, you know, also overall less effective, and you only kind of escalate someone to more, something more aggressive um, if, uh, you know, if they have breakthrough disease, meaning they have an attack or they have lesions on their MRI. And the, the other camp is, you know, 
time is brain. And, you know, we, we should be starting everyone on these high efficacy therapies, you know, very early on in, in order to you know, kind of stamp out their disease early on. And, um, and the whole field has kind of you know, moved more towards, um, uh, towards being aggressive early on. Um, and, you know, we were talking about um, Dr. Giovanoni earlier, and you know, he certainly is a proponent of, of being aggressive early on. Um, you know, my, my own view is that there are still some unknowns there in terms of, you know, long-term safety. And so there are studies ongoing right now to, to kind of randomize people between those approaches, um, meaning an escalation approach versus a, a high efficacy approach to figure out, you know, if, if we can identify patients, you know, that, that we know need aggressive therapy early on and are going to benefit from it. And, and those, you know, that maybe, you know, we're, we're better off starting with a safer option. And so I, I think that's, you know, one big debate, you know, that, that we'll likely have an answer to, to some extent within the next few years. Um, along those lines, you know, there, there's been some interest in, in um, blood stem cell transplants as a way to, you know, to almost kind of cure, you know, I, I use that in a, in a very um, cautious way, you know, cure, you know, the, the underlying problem in MS, um, you know, meaning, to kind of uh, reboot the immune system so that you know, those so auto-reactors the, aren't there. Is it homeopathic stem cell therapy? Uh, so it's, it's hematopoietic. Um, yeah, so it, which just means blood, you know, blood stem cells. The idea being that you know, people are treated with high doses of, of essentially chemotherapy agents to, to basically ablate their immune system, get rid of all of those auto-reactive cells. And then, you know, they're, they're given back their own hematopoietic stem cells from their bone marrow to kind of repopulate their immune system. And it's, it's kind of like rebooting a computer. Um, you know, you, you just, you kind of, the hope is that, that you've now, you know, kind of solved their autoimmunity problem. Doesn't mean that you're going to repair damage that's already been done, you know, but, but the hope is that you're kind of preventing further damage. And, and there's studies going on to compare that approach to, you know, to standard therapy. And, and so I, I think that, you know, might make a, um, a, a practical difference in care over the next few years. Um, in terms of, of new therapies, um, you know, there, there are a number of things on the horizon, um, you know, that, uh, you know that, that may or may not have a big impact over the next few years. And so, you know, there, there are a number of therapies that are being designed largely for relapsing MS, but there's, you know, some at least reason to believe or some hope that they might have a, a role in progressive disease. Um, there's a new class of drugs called BTK inhibitors that, um, uh, that um, target cells that we, in the brain, that we think play a role in progressive disease. And so, you know, there's, there's some hope there. Um, there are some treatments being tested that target um, uh, immune cells that have been infected with Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, and, you know, there's this long-standing association between EBV and, and MS risk, and so, you know, there's, there's some interest there in terms of what that might mean even for progressive MS, um, and there, there's a number of other treatments that are targeted, you know, either at, at preventing brain atrophy or, or myelin repair that I think on, you know, this span of like five or six years, you know, we'll, we'll have, you know, some, some data about, you know, I, I, I don't think those are going to be home runs in that period of time, but I think you're going to kind of, um, you know, possibly give us something to, you know, to actually protect the brain beyond just, you know, our, our treatment of, of the immune system, essentially. Um, that's, that's a little summary of, of, you know, what I see happening in the next few years. Okay. And, and finally, um, 
So we're quite a long way into the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic now. And depending on what part of the world you're from, most people are well into a, a vaccination response now. Um, and something that's particularly of interest to people with MS is, would they take a vaccine? And depending on what um, disease-modifying therapy they're on, whether that would have an effect, and which vaccines, you know, some vaccines safer than other vaccines, and, and would you encourage people generally to get vaccinated um, if they're on a disease-modifying therapy? So the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, uh, people should get vaccinated. Um, you know, the, the longer answer is that when it comes to vaccinations and MS, there's generally two concerns that arise, you know, both for people with MS and, and you know, for the, the doctors that care for them. One is the concern about whether a vaccine might actually induce uh, a relapse, induce a flare-up. Um, and, you know, that has been a concern for decades. And, you know, there is a theoretical basis for it, you know, that you think of MS as an autoimmune disease. You know, if you're giving someone a vaccine, you know, that's designed to create, you know, an inflammatory immune response, you know, could you trigger a relapse? Um, so generally speaking, you know, when, when we look at a wide variety of vaccines in terms of the risk of causing an MS attack, we, we don't see any risk there, you know, and so that has been very well studied with the, the, the yearly flu vaccine, but it's been studied with a number of other vaccines. And generally speaking, we have not seen any increased risk of MS attack with vaccines. And so, you know, extrapolating from that, you know, uh, you know, we, we think that the, the COVID vaccine will be equally safe from that perspective. There now is, has been one study in Israel, you know, where they've vaccinated the vast majority of their population. Um, one study looking specifically at people with MS who have gotten COVID vaccines there, and there has not been any increased risk of having an attack, you know, um, you know from the vaccine. And so, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, uh, there's not really reason to be concerned about that. Um, you know, the other concern is if you're on a medication that affects your immune system, is the vaccine going to be as effective? Um, and there are some considerations there. You know, so generally, you know, we, we know that people on medicines like the interferons, the termoracetate, um, uh, uh, dimethylfumarate or tecidera, you know, that really, those kind of immunomodulatory treatments, they don't have any impact on vaccine response. And so they're, they're not going to decrease the efficacy of, of the vaccine. There are certain medications that you do have to think about timing and the potential for, for affecting, um, you know, your response to the vaccine. You know, most notably is the, the B-cell therapies, you know, so that's um, Ocrevus, um, you know, now Pacimta, you know, someone who's on rituximab. Um, you know, those, those work, you know, by getting rid of cells that are important for antibody production. Um, and so we know, you know, from, from other vaccines, that they can decrease your your response to the vaccine. Um, you know, we we think you know that um, by uh, you know by delaying your vaccine, you know, uh, de depending on the guidelines, you know, from four to twelve weeks after your dose, you know, you you might be more likely to have a protective response. If you're about to start on one of those medications, you know, if you can getting vaccinated before you start on the medication. Um, you know, but the, the bottom line is that, you know, even for people on those medications, um, you know, they may not have the same level of protective response as someone else, but, 
but you know most people still develop some level of protective response and so um, you know it's still worth being vaccinated um, and so you know we, we think everyone should get vaccinated um, depending on your medication there may be some timing issues that are worth discussing with your neurologist okay that's very reassuring as I've been vaccinated so glad, I'm glad to hear that um, so with that thank you very much for joining us Dr. Michael Kornberg it was my pleasure thank you for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Well with MS. Please check out this episode's show notes at overcomingms.org slash podcast. You'll find all sorts of useful links and bonus information there. Do you have questions about this episode or ideas about future ones? Email us at podcast at overcomingms.org. We'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Living Well with MS is kindly supported by a grant from the Happy Charitable Trust. If you'd like to support the Overcoming MS charity and help keep our podcast advertising free, you can donate online at overcomingms.org donate. Thank you for your support. Living Well with MS is produced by Overcoming MS, the world's leading multiple sclerosis healthy lifestyle charity. We are here to help inform, support and empower everyone affected by MS. To find out more and subscribe to our e-newsletter, please visit our website at overcomingms.org. Thanks again for tuning in and see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this non-accredited podcast. Our thanks to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Program Director, Dr. Michael Kornberg from Johns Hopkins, and to Jeff Alix, host of the Living Well with MS podcast. And a reminder, if you're not yet an E-Multiple Sclerosis Review subscriber, please consider joining us. There are no fees involved, either for receiving our accredited programs or for obtaining your CME or CE credits. Just go to dkbmed.com. That's Delta Kilo Bravo Med.com. Or if you're listening to us on iTunes or whichever podcast provider you use, please like us. The more listeners we have, the more programs we can provide. Thank you for listening. For E-Multiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med, LLC.